Mark chapter 4 and beginning at verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation, or persecution, arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches, so the birds of the air can make nests in its shade." With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. 
But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who indeed? Do please be seated. So we're looking at this whole chapter, Mark, and to give you the the sermon in a sentence, it's all about the power of God's Word and our response to it. Both are critically important, both the power of God's Word and the necessity of our response to it. Uh, Jesus, in this day's ministry, begins with a particular parable that it seems that he used in multiple different times, the parable of the sower, very familiar. And then he built upon it other parables that are essentially saying the same sort of thing, the power of God's word and our response to it. And then at the end of the day, in his sovereignty, there's this miraculous event when they go across this um, uh, boat trip in the evening across the lake, and there's a huge storm. And that moment is also intended to teach us the power of God's word and the necessity of our response to it if we ourselves are going to experience uh, the power of his word in our own lives. So that's the theme of the sermon, the power of his word and the necessity of our response to it. Now, it's quite difficult, isn't it, actually, in church life uh, to bring these things together. We're so uh, familiar with religious jargon and phrases, and we use... Uh, pious language in church of all kinds all the time, sovereignty of God, the power of his word. And we, we, it, can, it can just sort of bounce off us without actually impacting us. It can, and there can be all kinds of different distractions. And we'll look at the, the kind of barriers that there are to the response because, of course, that's part of it. That, that it if it's necessary that we have a response... There can also be things that stop us having a response. Some of them are just distractions. Um, I can tell you as a preacher, um, never in any public event that I've ever been at, other than in church, have more cell phones gone off. I mean, it's not like we don't know that we should silence our cell phone. We just forget. And I think the devil uses these things, other distractions. Um, I mean, I love children. I love babies. I've had four of them, and each of them were cuter than any of yours, by the way. <laughs> um, so we want more babies in the church. And, if, you know, in good cottage church fashion, if you're married and you have five children, have ten. Fifteen. Let's repopulate the earth with Christians, you know. Amen? So I'm, a, I'm for all of that, you know. But, the, but, but uh, you, you, it, it can be funny in, in not, and distracting that you can suddenly... I, mean, I think it actually happened as I was just reading out here. And so if that was your baby, please don't feel in any way ashamed. I'm not trying to throw you under the bus or anything. But uh, you can sort of say, and peace, be still. And then immediately, I think it happened, didn't it? Immediately it was, wah! Like, and it just distracts you, doesn't it? The, mo- the moment's gone. 
Um, and then you can put it back in other ways. And, but it's amazing. I've been to theaters. I've been to movie. It doesn't happen there. But it does happen in church all the time. That sort of thing. And maybe babies don't go to ch- uh, movies, so that's maybe why. I don't know. But, um, and, and so there can be that sort of barrier. And then there can be barriers of, um, as I say, the sort of religiousness of this. And that's part of what Mark's saying. So Jesus is preaching. When you think of Jesus preaching the Word, we use um, the Word in different ways in our religious jargon today. Uh, we mean the Bible is the Word. Um, we mean um, the, if you're a theologian, the logos, the archetypal underpinning of the universe that God constantly upholds with the Word of His power. The Logos, in the beginning was the Word, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. That The Word holds everything together. That's the Word too. But here, of course, the Word that Jesus is preaching, that all these parables and this miraculous event are all about, is the Word that Jesus has already said, and Mark has summarized, which is the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. He's preaching the word, that message, that, 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 that the time has come, the kingdom is here because the king is here, and there's a message of good news, a salvation that is offered to you. That's the word that this, these parables and this event are all about, that word. And yet we can, in church life, we can think, well, that's fine for Sunday, but what does that mean for my, um, my friend who has cancer? Uh, what does that mean uh, for the person I know who was abused? Or what does that mean uh, for my wrestling with sexuality? Or uh, what does that mean for... Um, my business, my home, my marriage, my family. But then, of course, the way that Mark tells the story here, these parables end in very real life. They're on a boat in a storm, and what solves the problem is Jesus' word. And so what this is all driving, trying to get us to help us to see is that in all of our life, money, sexuality, marriage, family, business, everything, God's word is powerful and it's calling us to respond to it. So I'm going to go through the parables. I won't take them all at great length. There's just too many of them. But as I said at the beginning of this series, I'm trying to do big chunks to help you get the sense of the scale of the story of the gospel. And this, this chapter all hang, hangs together about the word and its power. And if there's anything that would solve the problems of the churches across the land, it would be a recommitment to the power of God's word. So I make no excuses for making sure that we get that big picture straight in our minds uh, as this church here at College Church, the power of his word. And so there are these parables, and of course it begins with the famous one, uh, the parable of the sower, which is a little bit of a misnomer. It should really, be, I think, be called the parable of the soils, um, but I suppose you 
could call it the parable of the sower if you like, but the variable here are the soils, of course, and these different soils that Jesus then explains what they mean. Um, But as a side note, and it's not the main point of the sermon, nor the main point of this passage, Jesus explains why he tells parables. And I do want you to notice what he says here, because why Jesus tells parables, as he explains it here, is the precise reverse of the explanation that most evangelical Christians give for why Jesus told parables. Most evangelical Christians will say that Jesus told parables because people like stories. They help you understand to have a story. Jesus says precisely the reverse. He told stories or parables so that people might not understand. That's quite a thought, isn't it? But that is exactly what he says in verse 12, quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Why do you tell parables? So that they may see but not perceive and hear but not understand. So stories are fine. Jesus tells stories. I tell stories in sermons. But they must be explained if you're to understand. And here Jesus is using stories, and this is the way they function in sermons still today, to pique the interest and then explain it to those who really are ready to hear. The parables are functioning a bit like a a sieve or a filter that is in these huge crowds that he had showing who really is hungry, who really wants to hear. So that's not the main point of the the sermon nor the passage, but it is here in the passage, and I did want to explain it for us. Uh, And then we come to these soils, and they're different soils, aren't they? The path, we're very familiar with this, the rocky ones, um, and and all the rest, the the troubles and and, and these distractions I already alluded to. But of all these, the most dangerous one, I think, for us, and we must be honest, as always we must be honest as a church, And we must be frank when we come to God's Word. The most dangerous one for us, of course, um, uh, are the thorns. These are the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things. I think this means material things. Uh, That all enters in and it chokes the Word and it proves unfruitful. I was fascinated some years ago to discover that a survey was done, a series of studies were done in a particular region of Southern California that um, before the Second World War had seen huge church attendance. And in that particular area, of course there are other massive churches in Southern California now in various places, but in that particular area of Southern California, um, there was a series of studies done to try and determine what it was that caused the decline after the Second War in church attendance. And the assumption of those who are doing the research, is the reason would have been uh, the apologetic issues, the academic intellectual issues, or perhaps even the the, the sexual liberation issues, the 1960s and all that, that have caused the church to decline. But no. Actually what had happened is that materialism entered in and people become very busy with their work and not just their work, we're talking about Southern California, of course, it's, it's a good place for entertainment, the beach, uh, mountains, 
sports and they skipped one Sunday and then they skipped another Sunday and for too long it was a month and they're like, well, why do I need to go to that place? Can't I, can't I be a Christian and not go to church? And then they stop going to church and of course then their children are not Christians. That's, that, that's the thorns. And it, it, if there's one danger, I would say, for America at large, the, the most, not one day, but the most important danger, and for the western suburbs of Chicago, it would be the thorns. Now, people say, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. True. But if you are a Christian, you will go to church. It's a sign of actually being a Christian. Uh, I'm married to Rochelle. I, I'm still married to her, even if I didn't see her. But if I never saw her, you would be right to question whether we were really married, and we probably wouldn't stay married very long. Similarly, if you're a real Christian, you will want to be in the family of God. And if you're not, then it will just be like, well, sports are more important, and I'll turn up occasionally. The thorns, money, another house, uh, our previous uh, worship pastor before um, Eric Dewar, some of you remember him, Dave Bullock, you probably don't know that he was actually quite a fan of country and western music. Um, well, maybe you did know that, sounds like you did. Uh, but I, it was something of a surprise to me, but, um, and I, as you might guess, am not naturally a fan of country and western music. But anyway, he got me listening to it. Uh, I, you know, I, why does he like it? So I, I, was, I remember one uh, car journey when I was listening to country and western in the car, and a song popped up on the radio, and it was so funny. I almost had a car wreck, I think. It just made me laugh so much, and you may know it, but the, the line in the song was, uh, money cannot buy you love, but it can buy you a boat. Yeah. So, you know, so it's, um, I just thought it was so funny. I love it. But he can buy you a boat and all these other things. I say, well, you know, what about, what about a boat or a, another, or a bigger car? And meanwhile, of course, people are going to hell around us. And people are starving. But I need, a, you know, a thousand dollar suit or a, Or oh, I must have, my kids must excel at sports and they can't ever miss it. And if it's on Sunday, well, they've got to go. Well, really, do they have to? And if what you're saying is they have to be there on a Sunday morning to do their sports, what message are you telling them? What you're telling them is sports are more important than the church. And then do not be surprised, my dear brother and sister, if in 20 years they decide that something else is more important than God. They're just being consistent with what you've trained them to believe. It's tough, isn't it? But we live in a land of plenty. And the only way to thrive in a land of plenty is to be generous with what God has given you. It's the only way. The only way to deal with the thorns is to be generous with your time and your possessions. So anytime you hear a Christian organization or church say, it's time to give, don't think, oh, they're taking away my money. No, think. 
they are reminding me of the importance of being generous so that I'm spiritually healthy. So the thorns. But uh, as I say, each of these parables about uh, the word and our response to it, and the rest of them are uh, different variations of the same thing, and I'll do them more briefly. Uh, The lamp under a basket, the lamp uh, that's shining, of course, is... Jesus shining out the word, you don't, he's not being hidden, he's doing it publicly. And then the response, the measure you use is, a, is the image is something's being poured into a bowl, that is the word, and you want, you want to use a large measure of receptivity so you understand more, understand, and if, if you understand more, then you'll receive more. And that's, that's always the way, isn't it? If you go to church hungry to learn, you'll learn and then you'll want, you want learn more, and then you want to learn more, and then you want to learn more. Whereas you come in here thinking, I've, I've heard it all before, then you'll learn less and less and less. And that's especially true, by the way, as you get older. I've had to think about this as I get older. I must discipline myself to read books by Christian leaders who are younger than me. I must do it. And I mustn't think to myself, the guy's 30, what does he know? Because if I think like that, all that's going to happen is I will stop learning. And then I'll get to be even more of a boring middle-aged man than I already am. So you've got to learn. So that's the measure thing. And then the the parable of the seed growing is a beautiful parable that we could preach for an hour all on its own. But the point, of course, is the power of God's word, that God's word will not return to him empty. It will do that which he has accomplished for it to do. Uh, for, for it to do. Uh, it, it, it's automatic by itself. That is, as a preacher, as a Bible study leader, as a mother who's training your children, you, you sow the seed in the word and you wonder what's going to happen. And you, you just have to trust, like when you sow a seed, that something will grow that when you sow the word, something will grow. And you keep sowing, and you keep sowing, and you keep sowing, for you know that there's power in the seed to grow. It's a wonderfully encouraging parable. And then similarly, the parable of the mustard seed, which, of course, the point of that is that uh, preaching, and again, the word here is about preaching. It's the word that, has been pre- that it's referring to is Jesus preaching, repent and believe, uh, the kingdom of God is the hand, repent and believe the good news. And, and the mustard seed seems such a small thing. Don't get all um, turned around by whether the mustard seed really is the smallest seed. That's not the point. It's a, it, it, and it could, it, 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 it's similarly, it's a parable, it's a story. I, 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 I get into trouble like this because I, I tend to tell stories for their impact. And Rochelle has often complained that when they asked me how long I was at Trinity, which is the church that we were a part of revitalizing New Haven, I always say 10 years, and she shrinks. But it's sort of like, no, because she's much more like a numbers person than I am, because for me it's 10 years, but actually it was nine years and two months. And she's like, it's nine years and two months. Well, for me, it's like, that's a decade. I was there 10 years, you know. And that's how I tell stories, um, which is why I'm not the church's accountant, probably. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and I think similarly, Jesus is just saying here, like, this is a very small thing, and yet it grows to a very big thing. So if you've ever read any liberal scholars who say, oh, look, Jesus was wrong, just tell them to go and read some poetry and grow up. So, um, sorry, that was a little too harsh, but you know what I mean. And so then it concludes with all these many parables that he told 
And then he explained to his own disciples, that is, it's not like there's a secret here, what's going on. Remember, the stories are to peak interest. The first, we've heard these stories so many times, they don't, they don't fascinate us. But you've got to imagine what it must have been like for a, a preacher to stand with a huge crowds and immediately tell these stunning stories that are filled with spiritual meaning, and you wonder what it means. And those who want to know, Jesus then explained. And those who are just there for the show, they don't, they don't get it. The good soil, he explains it too. All right? And then comes uh, the proof. The proof that this isn't just sermonic. It's not just churchy. It's not just religious. It works on a lake in a storm, and that's the Jesus coming, the storm at the end of it. There's a great windstorm. Uh, all sorts of people wonder what kind of storm it was, and they've looked at the Greek and tried to figure out what it's referring to, and I suppose we don't really know. What we do know is it was pretty bad, and the boat was filling up, and Jesus is asleep on the cushion, which is wonderful sovereignty, isn't it? There's Jesus. There's a huge storm, and of course, he's not concerned because He's the creator of the universe. It can't worry him. Uh, But they are worried. And again, there's the power of God's word, but then the human condition, isn't it? It's one thing to believe and know that God is sovereign. It's another thing not to be anxious when you've just had news of uh, that you've got some medical condition or that something difficult has happened to one of your children or or you've lost your job, you're in a storm, it's much harder then to actually trust God's sovereignty, isn't it? And of course, as we'll see, they, didn't, they still weren't even sure who Jesus was, but even for us who know, it's hard. And they wake him up, and uh, sometimes our prayers can be like that, can't they? It's like, Lord, and we're crying out to him, and of course God isn't asleep, Jesus humanly was asleep, but God doesn't slumber nor sleep. He hears our prayers. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, which is just wonderful. But this, of course, is his word. He's had all these parables about the word. Now in practical, real life, here comes the word. He speaks, peace, be still, or literally as many preachers down through the years have noticed, be muzzled. It's a phrase that's used earlier when Jesus rebukes the demons. He tells them also, be muzzled, not I think, and some people do think this, but not I think because Jesus is detecting some kind of demonic influence behind the wind and the waves. No, God rules the wind and the waves, not the demons. I think not because he's detecting some kind of demonic influence, but because that's the kind of thing that Jesus said when he wanted something to be quiet. He said, be muzzled. Uh, When we were growing up as a family, we, like all families, had certain standard things that we tended to say. And when we wanted someone to be quiet in the family, uh, we said, I'm afraid, and it's very rude in America, uh, not that rude, don't worry, but... uh, um, we would say, shut up. I, I, I remember my, um, my parents talking to our dog like that when it was barking. He said, oh, shut up. 
And, we, and if someone, actually in England, certainly from my background, if someone says something really amazing, it can be also exclamation of surprise. You know, they'll tell some story, and they'll go, oh, shut up, that's amazing. So we would say, shut up. And I think similarly, Jesus is saying to the wind, shut up. Incredible authority, isn't it? And the wind is quiet and meet straight away. How extraordinary it would have been to be there. There's a great calm. Perhaps even more remarkably, he then says, Why are you afraid? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? But again, the point of this whole chapter is the power of God's word and our response. And Jesus is looking for a response of faith. That's what it means to be good soil, therefore. That's what it means to have a, an open measure, therefore. Uh, to, to, to hear with a large measure. It's to have faith. So it's one thing for there to be a sermon... It's another thing for there to be fruit. I think uh, a lot of preachers have done something of a disservice to particularly the, 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 uh, the sower as if it's a, a manual for how to preach. Well, of course it isn't. It says very little about how to preach. It says a lot about how to listen. Now, I told you about that conference we've got coming out later, the Word Conference, which is going to be about preaching. And we do train people how to preach, and learning how to preach and how to teach is very important. But the honest truth is, you can have a pretty bad sermon and big fruit if we trust, if we receive. And of course, the, the most famous example of this in church history, I think, is of Charles Spurgeon, who went to hear a sermon in a small, strict Baptist church in the Essex countryside where the announced preacher was not there because he was stuck in a snowstorm and it was some poor old man who probably never preached before or certainly wasn't on the front rank of preachers and he was preaching and he noticed that Spurgeon was at the back and Spurgeon has this long monograph, a long monologue about what it was like for him when he's converted on this person's preaching. It's very, very funny and he sort of makes jokes in a, in, a, in a kind way about this person's preaching as being pretty bad and, and just repeating over and over and over again some, some saying. But I, I, when I've read that, I, though clearly it wasn't a particularly good sermon this man preached, what I've really thought about it is the power of God's Word that Spurgeon believed. One little seed... Mass, talk about 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. The differential wasn't the oratory, uh, the technique of the preaching. The differential was the receptivity of the person. And I think it keeps us preachers humble. Spurgeon tells another story which he calls that terrible sermon. When he really thought he'd preached a terrible sermon, was very discouraged. Um, Spurgeon, of course, struggled with depression. And he was extremely discouraged about 
this particular sermon that he preached, and then he discovered that God had used it mightily in the conversion of many people. Now, most people who've heard that story before conclude from it that even Spurgeon's bad sermons are pretty good, which I'm sure is the case. I mean, he prepared one sermon in his sleep, literally. He woke up in the middle of the night, not unable to figure out what he's going to preach the next morning. And in his sleep, he preached the sermon. His wife heard him preach it. She wrote it down, and that's the sermon he preached. Not a technique that I recommend to most preachers for preparation. <laughs> so I'm sure it's true that even his bad sermons are pretty good. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the so- story is it's about the receptivity. The point of these parables is it's about the receptivity. The point of the storm is, yes, God's word is so powerful that it can stop a hurricane. That's how powerful it is. But here are these disciples, and they don't believe yet. So it hasn't had any power in their lives. Isn't that amazing? What about our lives, of course? What about the things that we wrestle with? Our marriage? I I sometimes have counseled people when they'd be in marital crisis, and you can hear all sorts of things, but at the end of the day, uh, there's a uh, promise, isn't there? And there's a commitment, and there's even underneath that, there's a trust in God's Word, which doesn't mean there aren't opportunities to start again if things go wrong. Of course there are. We believe in a God of forgiveness. But where is our trust? The same, of course, with our money. Is our trust in money or in God? Where is our trust? Our sexuality. We may be wrestling with some area of sexuality. We know full well what the Bible says, but we're not sure it will be good for us. Where is our trust? I'll close with this parable. Uh, It's a true story. In 1859, the first person to um, walk on a tightrope across the Niagara Falls was Charles Blondin. And um, Charles Blondin was something of a showman, apparently, and he had a huge crowd watching. And the first time he went across, it took him about 17 minutes to go from one side to the other. No safety net under the tightrope, him just walking across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. But then he, it became easier and easier for him. One time, apparently, as he was going back to the falls, he actually lay down on the rope, you know, for some time. It's like, this, is, this isn't hard. And then he uh, stood on one leg on the rope with the falls underneath. And then his manager, he was, as I say, this is obviously part of his career doing this. I don't know much about the the man, but he had a manager. Um, He went to his manager, and he got his manager to sit on his shoulders. And then he walked across uh, Niagara Falls with his manager on his back. To rapturous applause. 
you're amazing. Look what you can do. You're so amazing. And then he turned to the crowd and said, who's next? And interestingly enough, no one, no one took him up on his offer. They'd seen him do it. They'd seen him lie down. They'd seen him stand on one leg. He'd done it over and over and over again. But no one would sit on his back. See, that's, that's the difference between hearing the Word and trusting in Jesus for your life, for your future. So the power of God's Word and our response to it. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, help us then to respond in faith, we pray, to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.